Well, hello, Kindred. It is great um, to see you and be with you for week three of Advent. Uh, it is the season marked by waiting and anticipation as we remember how the world waited and looked forward to the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. We have spent the last few weeks reflecting on this infamous story that we celebrate at Christmas about a baby in a manger. And we have tried to reimagine it as it really happened, honoring and taking account of these human details that we see reflected and represented in the story. We've been circling around this passage from the book of John that helps ground our understanding of the Christmas story. And it captures the heart of this event that we then recreate with nativity scenes and that we sing songs about. It captures why it is so profound. And I want to start there again, because tonight is going to be a, sort of like a part two from last week. So let's look again at how the disciple John introduces us to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so immediately we find out that Jesus is fully God, that he is eternal, so he has always existed. He was present and active in the creation of the world, and he is fully divine, so he shares the very same essence as God the Father. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus is also fully and truly human. We're going to return to these two words again tonight, that the word became flesh. So last week was part one, and we zoomed in on the significance of Mary conceiving and carrying this child, that God didn't take the same route he did with the first human, Adam, right? He didn't create a body from the dirt and then breathe life into him, but the word became flesh and his body took form in the womb of a pregnant Mary. And so this week, I wanna continue this conversation about God becoming flesh, but from a slightly different angle. I wanna draw our attention to the way that Jesus's humanity, it demanded and it required that his flesh be vulnerable be vulnerable just like ours, that his body held within it all of the same human needs and desires and weaknesses that ours do. And this might make some of us uncomfortable, thinking about a vulnerable, dependent, emotionally exposed Jesus. And maybe we prefer to protect the image of him that we have conjured up in our mind. Maybe our idea of God, it doesn't allow for him to be vulnerable. But what would it mean if he was? What would it mean for us if God disclosed and uncovered and actually opened himself up to us and the world? Or maybe we think that a vulnerable Jesus is somehow less reliable or less trustworthy, that in his humanity, the things that we need him to be for us, strong and impenetrable and bulletproof, that those things would be compromised. But his vulnerability, his humanity, it is actually the very thing that makes Jesus reliable and trustworthy. It is the very thing that makes him capable of saving us, of rescuing us. 
And so let's go back into the story as it is told in the book of Luke. Mary is nearing the end of her pregnancy, and the Roman emperor issues this decree that a census be taken in the entire Roman world. So in light of this, Mary and her betrothed, Joseph, they leave Nazareth, and they have to go back to his ancestral home in Bethlehem. This is when we read, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So we don't get to read Mary's entire birth story in scripture from how her contraction started to how long she labored for or if Joseph like held a leg as she pushed. We are spared all of those gory details, but without them, without those gory details, sometimes we forget how vulnerable birth truly is, that it is gory, that it is visceral, that birth, while it is sacred, it can also be somewhat violent or dangerous, especially in the first century. Now, we don't have to think about this too deeply, but from the way that Luke captures the story, we're able to gather that Mary didn't have with her all the preparations that she had likely made at home for her delivery because they were traveling. And there's no mention of a midwife or a healer uh, to guide her through this for the very first time. And so much has to go just right, all at the same time. There has to be enough oxytocin to keep contractions moving, the baby's positioning and mom's endurance. All of this has to line up just right. There was a moment uh, during my own labor When things got a little dicey, my son's heart rate would drop during each contraction. And this became concerning enough that at one point, my midwife, she looked right at me and she said, Lindsay, she said, we have to get your baby out. He is not going to endure pushing for very much longer. This is to say that birth is risky. It's risky, even with all of our medical advancement and intervention, birth in this very unique and specific way, it demands that both Mary and Jesus be vulnerable. Jesus was vulnerable even in birth. He would risk coming into the world in this way. He would risk labor and delivery, making himself susceptible to every possible thing that could go wrong in such a delicate and dangerous and beautiful thing. This is how King Jesus arrives on earth, not in any majesty, not in any pomp and circumstance, not dressed in robes or shielded by a battalion of soldiers, but God in the flesh comes to us naked and exposed and covered in blood and mucus, right, vulnerable, This is a defining characteristic of Jesus, of who he is and what he will do over and over again. He will make himself vulnerable. And if we look just slightly ahead to one of the last moments of his earthly life, we will see Jesus there again, naked and exposed and covered in blood. So Jesus is born and then scripture reads, that Mary, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
And a lot of people get caught up in the manger thing here in this verse. And culturally, a manger in the first century, it would have been a stone trough somewhere in a dark cave. And that alone holds a great deal of significance. But reading this story again this year from a new lens, that's not the part that grabbed my attention. It says that she wrapped him in cloths and then placed him in a manger. And I got this really clear picture here that Jesus was a newborn, a helpless, needy newborn. Jesus was not different from every other newborn. He was not automatically self-sufficient. He was not exempt from all of the typical newborn things. And so having a newborn myself makes me think about this quite differently, that Jesus was born into the world as a defenseless baby. I'm remembering those first few days in the hospital with my son, the way he was so impossibly small, right, and so fragile, right? If you watch a new parent hold their baby, their shoulders are like up here, right? We're so scared that any like little movement or motion might break them, right? I remember the way that the nurses and our family, everyone treated him so gingerly, Right, we would lay him down in that little bassinet so, so carefully. And so I imagine Mary, right, this new mom, trying to wrap her baby in cloth, right, struggling to know how to hold his head just right and how to get that cloth swaddled around him because it is literally impossible. I, rem- I think about the way that this newborn needed to be fed. He had to be clothed. He had to be changed. He needed to be carried He needed to be bathed and soothed and shushed and rocked back to sleep. There is not one thing that Jesus came into the world able to do for himself. And when we consider this, right, the full breadth of his humanity, that as a newborn, he relied on Mary and on Joseph for every basic need. We are confronted again with Jesus's vulnerability that he did not enter the world with this sense of superiority, already knowing how to function in the world. He did not come to us with full adult capacities, but his humanity also required him to grow up, to learn, to be taught, to to become. In the end of the chapter, it reads this. It says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so Jesus was vulnerable to learn, to take direction and instruction for how to eat and how to walk and how to speak. He was vulnerable to experience puberty. Yes, even puberty, his voice cracked and his face broke out and the other horrors that teenage boys must experience. Right? He was vulnerable to live in relationship. Jesus' humanity, it also meant that he was vulnerable to things like family dynamics. He knew what it meant to be a brother and a son. He was vulnerable to friendship and all that comes with it, rejection and misunderstanding and belonging and joy. Jesus danced at weddings and he made jokes with his friends and he shot the breeze over dinner and he did nothing together with the people that he loved. In becoming flesh, 
Jesus took on every aspect of our humanity, making him open and vulnerable to every human thought, every human emotion and experience outside of sin. And this can't be overstated. It's important that as we remember that while Jesus is God, he is also human in every possible way, from his cognition, the way he thinks, to his emotional life and his psychology, to his biology and his sexuality, to his physiology, being limited by the body's need for food and water and shelter and rest. I want to return to the verse that we heard earlier tonight in our Advent reading. It's from the book of Hebrews, and it describes Jesus's vulnerability like this. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Therefore, it was necessary. It was necessary for him to be made in every respect, like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. This passage, it reveals two key understandings about Jesus's vulnerability and why it was necessary that Jesus be made like us in every respect, in every single way. The first is around empathy and solidarity. Our passage describes that he has gone through suffering and testing. It's said another way later in Hebrews like this, for we do not have a high priest, a representative before God, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And the word for emphasize, or empathize here in verse 15, it means to co-suffer, to suffer alongside. And so Jesus has felt every grade and nuance of suffering there is to know. He is deeply acquainted with every feeling that we have had to navigate. When we feel out of place or just kind of strange for being who we are, when that friend walks out on us, when the people we're close to get sick and when they die and when they leave us too soon, when we're made fun of or we feel belittled, disappointment and betrayal and loneliness, Jesus has co-suffered it all. And by becoming flesh, Jesus has made himself vulnerable to the darkness and the brokenness of our world, which means he understands the places that we sin from, the thoughts or the feelings, the temptations that cause us to then choose things other than God. He has come right up close to those same thoughts and feelings, that same darkness, but unlike us, Jesus chooses to stay the course. And so I used to struggle with the end of that verse, the yet he did not sin. I thought that Jesus' unattainable perfection, I thought it alienated him from me. I always read this verse as sort of condemning, 
Like, yeah, Jesus understands how you feel, but he would never do the thing that you did. Until recently, I came across an idea that C.S. Lewis used to describe this. He would say to picture a man walking against the wind. So literally how you got here tonight, (laughs) walking against the wind. And once that wind, it got strong enough, the man would eventually lie down, right? Having fought against it long enough, he gives in. And so after giving in, the man now has no idea what it would feel like to be in that wind a second longer than he was. He doesn't know what that wind feels like five minutes later or 10 minutes later or 20 minutes later, right? Because he's lied down. Lewis goes on to explain how Jesus never laid down. He never gave in or subsided. This means he knows the exact strength of that temptation, of that spiral, of that seduction better than we do because he endured it. He endured the wind. He stayed standing. He stayed in the fight. And so he knows the cost of what it takes to remain. He knows what that wind feels like five, 10, 20 minutes later. This is a profound comfort, this kind of solidarity, that in our struggle and in our own suffering, when the darkness of this world, when it closes in on us and makes us feel fragile, Jesus does not belittle that weakness. But in his vulnerability, he opened himself up to that same darkness, and he stepped into it, and he endured it, making him the only person who knows exactly what it is that you feel and the unique weight, the unique pull that it has on you. This means that there is not one part of being us, of being a living, breathing, growing, suffering human that God has distanced himself from. There is not one part of having to be human in this world that he has said, I will not share with you. Secondly, Jesus' humanity, it is the key. It is the very key to our rescue and to our freedom from sin and darkness. He had to become vulnerable to the point of death. Right, our passage from Hebrews, it says it this way, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way, it was necessary, only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Months from now, right, we'll celebrate Easter, when the divine was put to death, and his bones broke, and his flesh tore, and he stopped breathing, that Jesus's body, he very literally died. And then how three days later, his flesh, the thing that died, was transformed and it was resurrected and brought back to life. In one of these ancient councils where these theologians and church fathers, they would grapple and wrestle with what these concepts, like what are the implications of a fully divine and a fully human Jesus. They concluded in one of these councils that what is not assumed is not healed. What is not assumed is not healed. So this is to say that if Jesus did not take on every aspect of our human nature, 
Well, then his sacrifice on the cross would then therefore not reach into and redeem every aspect of our fallenness, of our brokenness. Our very salvation, it required that he become like us in every way, that he become vulnerable to torture, to trauma, to eventually death. And his victory over sin and evil and death, it was won in and through his body by its very crucifixion and by its resurrection. It happened no other way. And so when we talk about Jesus becoming flesh at Christmas, when we talk about this baby born into a family, having to grow in wisdom and stature, living within the full scope of human existence, when we talk about Jesus's vulnerability, we are really talking about our hope, hope for our minds, right, that are plagued by worry and harmful thought patterns. We're talking about hope for our bodies that are sick and are decaying, hope for our hearts and our souls, hope for every part of us that is broken and that is fallen, it rests and it resides in Jesus being fully human too, in his vulnerability, that he would share himself with us, that he would open himself up to this brokenness and that by his body bruised and brutalized, we are then made new. We get transformation and we are healed. And so this Advent, The invitation is in whatever has you feeling vulnerable, whatever makes you feel exposed and seen and at risk, whatever has you feeling fragile, that is the very place Jesus wants to meet you. It is where he has compassion and comfort and empathy waiting for you. This is the invitation of Advent, of a vulnerable baby born into the world. Kindred, would you stand? Let's pray together. God, God, thank you for tonight, the chance to be together. God, the chance to gather, to open your word and see what it is that you have for us. God, I thank you for the way that you meet us. Whatever it is that we have brought in this room with us tonight, God, I thank you that you meet us in weakness. That God, you don't despise or belittle or condemn the ways that we feel fragile, the ways that we need help. God, I pray tonight that you would illuminate this story. God, that when we picture and imagine and think about a baby Jesus wrapped in cloth and placed in a manger, God, that we would recognize and that we would be in awe of your vulnerability, that our God is one who would lower himself, who would open himself up to a shared life, who would open himself up to relationship and harm and wounding for us. God, I pray that you meet each one of us in our vulnerability, that you would help us to see this is exactly who you are and where you are waiting for us. 
Jesus, we love you and we need you. And I pray this in your name. Amen.